Hey everyone, back again now on part four of Thomas Hobbes' Hobbes's Leviathan, and we are going to be covering from chapters 24 till 31, or until the actual, or till part three of the text. But before jumping into it, check out the previous episodes. If you haven't already, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends who knows they might love it. Follow me on other platforms if you want to, if you have access to them. You help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. Of course, now let us jump right into the rest of this text, or at least the penultimate part that we are going to cover here, the episode we're going to do. And we're going to start from chapter 24 of the nutrition and procreation of a commonwealth. So God has supplied people <laughs> with ample resources on the land and sea, but it will still be necessary for people to trade and this is a necessary thing to consider because if we're talking about commonwealths, we're talking about sovereigns, and we're talking about people, chances are they're going to need to trade things. Not everyone has access to everything right immediately in front of them. Now, he's totally clear that at, at the core of it, God has supplied us with the ability to care for ourselves with the ample resources that are easily found right in front of us. Now, knowing this, for Hobbes, one of the sovereign's duties, so, so far, really, the sovereign's prime objective has been to maintain order and peace and to protect from foes. That's been the sovereign's primary duty. Now, Hobbes suggests that in terms of land, the sovereign is also responsible to distribute land to people so that they have ample resources to provide for themselves. Now, like many other little things, this is something that John Locke would come to disagree with, even though he doesn't come out and say, I disagree with Hobbes. John Locke vehemently opposes this idea. For Locke, property is really the most sacred thing. It's not to be given to you. It's something that is earned by working on the land. Now, because for Hobbes, the primary goal of the commonwealth is to maintain order and safety. This in conjunction with his appreciation of monarchies, which remember I said, it's not like that's the only one that works for him. It just happens to be his favorite. It is clear that Hobbes thinks that the sovereign should have fundamental control over all the land all the time. That is because if not then people might gain too much power and risk usurping or challenging the sovereign's authority. So it is in their interest to maintain some kind of power and control over the land so that people don't get too strong, get too powerful, get too wealthy, and then get some ideas about overthrowing the sovereign. Now, in addition to all of this, the sovereign's responsibility in terms of trade is to make sure that people acknowledge and accept universal currencies like gold, silver, or any kind of marker of exchange or tool of exchange, and to make sure that people adopt these across different commonwealths or that they are engaging with other sovereigns and establishing what will be a common universal currency that they can all use so that they can easily trade among themselves. And the point of that is really to make sure that the people within the commonwealth can access everything that they need. Because 
as we know already, you know, not everyone's going to have all of the resources that they need right in front of them. Some commonwealths might be closer, have easier access to water. Some might be in more desert areas where it's difficult to grow crops, whatever. So trade is necessary in order to make ends meet, in order to provide where things fall short, as per what the, the land offers immediately in front of them. And that puts us here into chapter 25, titled Of Counsel. So counsel is distinct from command in that it's just an opinion. People who, who are giving counsel are not ordering anything. They are just for the benefit or counsel is just for the benefit of the person receiving it, whereas command is for the benefit of the person being commanded. So people who receive counsel can't turn against counselor for bad outcome of some kind of a, a, a counsel or a conseil, uh, some kind of an opinion or idea. They can't turn against them because there was some negative outcome that came from the counselor's uh, aid. Because part of the task of actually pursuing a counselor is to do research and putting your faith in that person to help you. Now, the only exception is if someone gives you counsel to break the law or to break a, break a sovereign's law. And in that case, then that would be bad. But other than that, Hobbes is clear that someone who seeks counsel for anything has to accept the responsibility for whatever outcome comes from that counsel. And the same is true, he says, of sovereigns who seek counsel, where, you know, if they seek some kind of help or opinion about a matter that they haven't yet legislated about or that the Commonwealth hasn't dealt with before, they can't get mad at the counselor for helping them. They can only really be upset with themselves. Or if there's a negative outcome, at the end of the day, it's their fault for having made the choice because they are the one commanding. And they aren't, uh, I mean, the counselors are not making any decisions. Now, as per the actual how counseling should be conducted, Hobbes says that the best way that counseling is conducted is if you get many opinions from many people, many different areas of expertise, and you pursue those or you seek those opinions separately from one another. So you don't just get a bunch of people into the room throwing opinions around because then you don't, you can't get anywhere if anyone's, you know. You've worked a job before and sat in on a Zoom or Teams meeting where everyone's giving opinions, you find that things don't actually end up happening very easily from that. So Hobbes suggests that the best way to do it is to pursue each person's opinion on their own. And then at the end of it, you're able to now having gotten all of these different people's ideas where they aren't necessarily, they weren't prejudiced by anyone else in the room or anything like that, you could have the most clear overall picture about what should be done in terms of whatever thing you're seeking counsel for. And here we get to chapter 26 of civil laws. So civil law is the consecration or the enshrinement or the establishment of what is right and what is wrong within the commonwealth. So laws are made in a commonwealth and therefore by the people through the sovereign as an individual that they have consented to. So remember, like the sovereign hasn't just rolled in and said, you know, you are my subjects now. Within Hobbes's framework, he's illustrating the sovereign that has come about through consent. 
people have agreed that there should be the sovereign and they are to and the sovereign is to represent the people so any rules that the sovereign sets up then in Hobbes's world are really the rules set up by the people because they've elected this sovereign and so laws will be passed or legislated in accordance with what the people believe is right and wrong now this is also like in this framework the sovereign is always above the law for Hobbes they're able to legislate to establish laws they're able to suspend laws whenever they want they they exist essentially outside of the law and this is also something that Locke would come to disagree with or think is not it's not how things should work for obvious reasons you should never have someone who exists above the law now civil laws should inform themselves or should be informed by the natural laws that we've spoken about earlier specifically the laws maintaining self-preservation liberty and the right to protect oneself if if need be everything else or every civil law that emerges within a commonwealth should be informed at the very least by these ideas that is people deserve liberty that is they shouldn't be put in any kind of arbitrary control that they haven't consented to no one should be subject to physical uh harm at least i don't think he was you would extend this to mental harm but you know i assume not maybe he did but people should not be subjected to harm and people should be allowed to defend themselves in cases where they are being threatened unless they're being threatened by the sovereign and in which case i'm not really sure what would happen for hobbes like would this be a socrates type dynamic where socrates is like i'm going to stick by my constitution that you know the state is just and i've broken the pact with the state so therefore i must die i i mean i don't know should people just capitulate if the sovereign doesn't like them i mean who knows now laws are never like i don't know of any situation where laws are just one and done because uh although I'm, i don't know much about this topic like laws across the world but i assume for the most part you know a, a nation will have their general laws and then each province each state each territory each town might have its own bylaws smaller laws so in such a case hobbes is clear that the overall laws of the commonwealth that are set up by the sovereign are just those are correct can't be denied because they're set up by the people he says that laws can go wrong though when they deal with more local specific things that are set up just by local judges or magistrates or whatever in those cases because they have been legislated not by the sovereign but by some local person just setting up laws they are then open to fault or making mistakes that could be unjust now he's clear that this doesn't mean that there shouldn't be like judges even at the highest levels all laws should be informed by natural laws but hobbes doesn't live in you know fairy tale land where there's a perfect cohesion between natural and civil laws he's clear that these things are up for some amount of interpretation things happen in the world that are just unpredictable or do not easily lend themselves to judicial or judicial explanation or understanding and so judges play a fundamental role 
in helping to properly interpret law and to situate those laws within you know, the broader context of sovereign rule in order to adjudicate, to oversee any kind of issue that demands the judge's presence. Like between two people, if they're fighting about a plot of land or something, the judge's role is to stand in for the sovereign in that moment and to say, I know the sovereign's rules. I know the Commonwealth's rules and laws. And I am the person who's going to decide what should happen in this situation. That is, they're going to determine who is at fault and what should happen as a result. Should someone be punished for what they've done? Should they be forced to pay an amends for what they've done? They're the person that is the judge is the person that's going to uh, lay this out. Now, he makes an interesting claim here that if there are any laws that are not written that people nevertheless follow, then it must be a natural law. And it's an interesting thing because it's hard to say what that necessarily looks like because for him, the natural laws are like self-preservation, liberty. And at the time when he was writing this, it was before like, you know, the American Revolution. I don't know how many commonwealths had liberty enshrined in their law books. So at the time, he was just kind of taking it that liberty doesn't need to be like written down. It's just an accepted law that everybody must follow. And in which case, like, is it really a law if it's just kind of assumed? Or is this more a demonstration of order? Or, I mean, bigger question, actually, what is the difference between order and law? Can you have order without law? Can you have law without order? I get this question from Colasso. Not important, but a thought experiment for yourself. Now, good judges have four fundamental qualities for Hobbes. That is, they have knowledge of equity, they have contempt of unnecessary riches, hmm. they have a lack, they, uh, they harbor a lack of emotionality, like love, hate, contempt, everything like this, and they are patient and diligent. These are the primary qualities that a judge should possess for Hobbes that would allow them to be the objective overseers of any situation where their only job, that is, they're devoid of any kind of emotional insight or anything, is to just look at something, a case, quote-unquote, objectively, while also, and I think it's interesting, being wary about or demonstrating contempt for unnecessary riches, because that makes a lot of sense. As certainly, like we see in the criminal justice system in the United States, for example, right now, people with more money are going to have a better time in the justice system than people with less money, which seems unfair. But that's just the way it works there. Not to say it can't change or shouldn't change. It's just the way it is now. And it seems like they might learn something from Hobbes. Should judges have contempt for unnecessary riches? Hmm. Now, he further divides laws into two kinds. He suggests there are fundamental laws and these laws protect the commonwealth itself and the sovereign. And if you break these laws, these fundamental laws, it might mean that the commonwealth disintegrates like treason, for example, or uh, to conspire against the sovereign or regicide or anything like that. These are fundamental laws. 
Now, by contrast, there are non-fundamental laws, and these refer to situations where the commonwealth won't be at stake or the sovereign won't be at stake if one of these laws are breached. And of course, the former fundamental laws are, you know, breaking them is more severe than breaking non-fundamental laws. And that puts us here into chapter 27, very appropriately looking at of crimes, excuses, and extenuations. So crime simply is a breach of the law. All crimes are sins for Hobbes, but not all sins are crimes. So it's not a crime to intend to cause harm, though it might be a sin. It's not a crime to covet your neighbor or to you know, feel jealousy towards someone, which would be a sin. Would it be a sin? Yeah, it's a sin, right? Yeah, whatever. But it's not, you aren't breaking the law if you do that. And we're going to get into this more in the next part when we look at his idea about Christianity, Christianity informing his views of the Commonwealth. But his view of it is like he's very, he adheres very much to scripture. But when he deals with Christian stuff, he tries very hard to see through all of the religi- religiosity of it, like the el- which the wrong way to put it, but he looks beyond the spiritual parts of things and looks at like the material facts within the biblical narrative. Not not talking about demons or hell or any of that stuff, because for him that that is all just it's all just hocus pocus. It's, it doesn't actually inform anything this has just been the product of some priests trying to persuade the people into fearing god or into fearing uh you know fearing doing certain things because they'll go to hell like hobbes is not buying any of that he thinks it's just like a sin and you will be whatever will happen to you in the afterlife will happen to you for committing sins but he doesn't think that there's like you know a devil at work here in in helping these sins occur or at least not a devil in the you know popularly understood sense and sitting in hell and fire and and horned like tongued forked tongue and a tail like none of that so anyways i digress a crime is a breach of law simply enough so if there are no laws and if there's no commonwealth and if there's no sovereign then there are no crimes Nothing that anyone does is a crime in any type of setting that is not of the state or under sovereign power. So with this, Hobbes is surprisingly flexible, suggesting that ignorance of laws is a valid defense for newcomers, like people entering a commonwealth, or in cases where laws were not adequately declared or made known to everybody. Now, maybe this seems like a minor detail, but I think it's interesting because he's conceding that laws are not like pre-programmed into us. And there are things that must be learned. And if they must be learned, I think it forces us to ask or encourages us to ask how much of this is really natural or how much of submission to sovereign authority is natural, to sovereign law is natural. Because as he says, like, he likes to say there, there, you know, there are these so-called natural laws, self-preservation, liberty, yada yada yada. But that is hardly, you know, the only. There's no commonwealth that's just like, yep, 
we are the land of self-preservation and liberty. Like, no, they have like 10,000 other laws like that you have to follow in order to make that possible. All of which are just made up. They're just agreed upon social constructs. They do, they do not actually reflect any kind of natural disposition. We, we aren't born knowing about any of these laws. We have to be taught them. So he's, he's gentle here. So he thinks that somebody just showing up into a new commonwealth should be treated with some amount of sympathy or flexibility if they have not learned the rules of that society yet. However, it would be totally wrong if somebody was like, exploited that and was like, okay, I'm going to go to this commonwealth or this nation and impose my views onto them, my understanding of law and justice onto them, because that would conflict with whatever is currently at work in that commonwealth. Moreover, he's clear that ignorance about punishment is no defense. So if you knew that breaking a, a law was wrong or like it was, there, you were breaking a law, you can't say, oh, I didn't know this was going to result in like the death penalty and then therefore you're off the hook. For him, that doesn't work then because you knew that you were breaking a law. So people break laws for three primary reasons for Locke. That is, number one, lack of respect for justice and the desire to manipulate that justice. Number two, misguidance by false teachers. Number three, or just number three, vanity or belief in possessing adequate knowledge of laws through experience alone and not through study. So the first one is easy, lack of, lack of respect for justice and desire uh, to manipulate it. You're just, I don't know, seen as being a vagabond delinquent, I guess, in this type of situation. The second one, referring to misguidance, maybe you've been led astray. Somebody has claimed to speak the sovereign's laws, but they actually aren't, and you believe it, and then you're led astray. I assume that, I don't know how, what he'd think if people who went through that would, should be treated more leniently. And then the third case refers to people believing that they have more knowledge than the laws actually lay out where people are like, oh, I don't need to review the laws. I understand how things work. I don't need to, you know, I've lived my life this long. It's totally fine. And then they can be led astray by their own uh, faith in themselves, their own belief in their own knowledge. Now, he's clear, though, that people who are mentally ill or children should not be held to the same standard as others, people who are not actually able to follow the laws for whatever physical or psychological reason for Hobbes shouldn't be treated like they were able to for him. Now with all of this, crimes and the responses to them are not really set in stone. That is, there's always going to be some interpretation by looking at a case, that is what the judges are doing, and determining like was their intent, who who was affected and how much. So some of the things that must be considered are intent, they have to also consider the likelihood of contribution to further crimes. Like if a judge is overseeing a case, they're going to look at it, they're going to look for intent, and they're going to look at whether or not the actions committed are likely to produce copycats or likely to produce more crime, in which case they should treat it more harshly in order to send a message. They have to also consider the harm done by looking at the number of people affected how many people were affected by the crime, and how many times was it, you know, done, how many different places, and so on. 
Now he provides an example, two, two different cases. He says, in a case where somebody thinks that they can commit a crime and get away with it because they're rich is worse for him. That is a much worse thing to do than to commit a crime and fear what's going to happen to you and fleeing as a result. Now, in our world, you know, I'm in America right now, but like in America, it's the other way around where people who, who are rich, they get treated so much better. They get pampered in the criminal justice system. If somebody flees because they're too poor uh, to actually defend themselves or they fear whatever punishment will befall them, that is a much better thing to do. And the reason it's a much better thing to do for Hobbes is because it demonstrates some amount of respect for sovereignty and the sovereign's laws. Because the person who committed that crime is still respects those laws and is like, yeah, I'm going to get this punishment because I did this thing and these laws are going to come after me. I can't beat them. I can't beat these laws. I don't claim to be above these laws. I've done something wrong and now I'm just going to run. And that's all they're going to do. But the rich person who says, yeah, I can, I'm, I'm bigger than these laws. These laws don't affect me. For Hobbes, that's like, that's like blasphemy. Like you cannot do that. Moreover, for Hobbes, it's much worse to steal from a poor person than a rich person. Because remember, you have to consider the harm actually done against someone when adjudicating a crime. Which doesn't seem to be the case now. If I steal from someone who's experiencing uh, homelessness or homeless, uh, precarious housing, I'm going to be treated much better than if I stole from the Kardashians, for example, or some other rich ding dong somewhere in LA. Like, what? But that's how things have developed now and flies totally in the face of what Hobbes had in mind. Not to say that the framers of the constitution or law after that were like reading Hobbes and trying to be informed by it, but it's interesting to see how things have changed here at least thinking about law in this way. So additionally, it is much more serious to break a law that is one of the fundamental laws that protects the Commonwealth, much more severe than just breaking a law by harming another person. That's still bad, of course, but less severe for Hobbes. Um, he also adds that it's much worse to murder a parent, as horrible as that is, than anybody else, because a parent, as we talked about last I think in the last episode, the parent is kind of the first sovereign that people encounter in their lives. They are an example of paternal power, and they kind of set the stage for what would become the, you know, the regular sovereign that they submit to in their lives. And that puts us here into chapter 28 of punishments and rewards. So punishments are evils inflicted against those who transgress the laws to cultivate ob obedience. So punishments are meant not only to punish someone, but to set an example, to say to everybody else, look, if you commit this crime like this person did, you will experience the same fate. And they do it to deter people, to keep them from committing those crimes. So sovereign is given the right to inflict harm as people give up their right to do so when they form the Commonwealth. So Hobbes doesn't think that anyone should just be able to enact justice. If you did, it would just be the state of war all over again. It'd be chaos. There'd be no, there'd be no order. Only the sovereign has the right to inflict harm against somebody. 
And these punishments can assume many forms. It can be physical punishment, imprisonment, death sentence, fines, and so on. So it is unjust to punish the innocent unless they are foreign and their punishment would be good for the commonwealth, as Hobbes suggests, for the commonwealth is the final good. Defending it is what it is the core of what is considered to be just in Hobbes's eyes. And anybody who poses a challenge to that commonwealth should expect to be punished. So the sovereign and the commonwealth do not only punish people, they also like to reward people with salaries and gifts who actually do well. So in cases where the sovereign gives reward to someone that they fear, this is not a gift nor a salary, but it is a sacrifice. For example, if a sovereign is worried about a neighboring commonwealth, a neighboring sovereign, they might give them a gift out of fear that they, you know, they'll... <laughs> If, in order to avoid that person then invading them or something. In that case, it's a sacrifice. It's to propitiate, not propitiate, propitiate some kind of another figure, to appease them. Now, all of this demonstrates that the commonwealth and the sovereign power need to be defended. They need to be protected. They are under constant threat by enemies foreign and domestic, and so these laws are set up to maintain it, to keep it alive and to keep it safe. And that puts us here into chapter 29. Of those things that weaken or tend to the disillusion of a commonwealth. So the first threat is born out of the belief that less power is needed than actually needed to defend the commonwealth from foreign and domestic threats. So that's a case where the commonwealth might be weakened. So the sovereign thinks, oh, we're good. We don't need to invest in our military. We don't need to invest in people having uh, arms to defend themselves from invaders. Like we don't need any of that. Uh, that's totally fine. This might actually prove to be a problem in a case where the commonwealth is actually attacked. Or perhaps the commonwealth thinks that they don't need to write down every single law or adjudicate everything and these things, the, the accumulation of many breaches of the law, even non-fundamental ones, will eventually erode people's faith in the commonwealth. And then there are cases where, uh, like, people are seditious, they try to usurp to overthrow the sovereign, and of course that's, like, that's not good for sovereign power, and that's not good for the commonwealth. Uh, like, people who believe that they are more just than the sovereign... They are more just than the commonwealth. They see themselves then as being above it. This poses a fundamental uh, threat and risk to the commonwealth. And then there's uh, situations where there's people who think that they, they should be the sovereign. They are the ones that are the most just. But that, of course, can never happen unless it was done by the consent of everyone else. Which, actually, no, because their consent was given to that first sovereign so, yeah, that couldn't happen, and it would be bad for the commonwealth, obviously. Another potential threat emerges when the sovereign is made subject to civil laws, because, as we said earlier, the, the sovereign exists above laws. If they are subject to laws, then they, are, they no longer occupy this transcendent position of being above everybody else and therefore calling the shots and being responsible for everyone. If they are held on the same level as everyone, 
then they are just the same as everyone and then you fall into a state of war again you need this hierarchy for hobbes where the sovereign is at the absolute top and the subjects exist underneath it another threat is if people view their property and riches as purely their own and not as existing as part of and underneath within a commonwealth and in such cases because they believe that everything that is theirs is truly theirs they will just accumulate more and more power and wealth and eventually overthrow the sovereign and then the final threat that he considers is the case of a divided sovereignty where there are too many powers that infiltrate too many too many cooks in the kitchen and so you have the state of war at the level of sovereignty perhaps it splits into two different commonwealths and then you have pure chaos none of that works for hobbes now he sees of of all the people like we've already mentioned he did not have a very good view of a very rosy image understanding appreciation for the greeks and he repeats that here to say that of all of the people in history of all the philosophers he thinks that the greeks were the most harmful to his idea of the commonwealth of leviathan because of their in the <laughs> i think the term is their tyrannophobia that is the greeks didn't like tyranny they liked democracy the athenian greeks like democracy at least on paper and so he thinks that that's a, a fundamental problem because for him the commonwealth can look many different ways it doesn't need, need to just be a democracy as they would appreciate it and because they input this vision onto everybody what they do is they limit or what they're doing or what they've done is limit people's opportunity to actually embrace different kinds of commonwealths that would actually be best for them like a monarchy or aristocracy and then some other threats like that he gives us include uh, lack of funds and the commonwealth becomes too poor oh, nice lovely truck lovely truck some community members getting too popular growth of towns or corporations above that of sovereign power insatiable growth of commonwealth that grows too big to actually govern lack of public trust due to lost war all of these things pose risks to the sovereign to the commonwealth and here we get chapter 30 of the office of the sovereign representative so the sovereign is responsible for the well-being of their people and they take on all the risks and all the benefits of that role so the sovereign's primary duty is to maintain order and obedience as i think we've already made really clear and this is true of all governments people must be taught not to worship any other figures than the sovereign in the way that they worship the sovereign and god of course and god and god and they have to be taught not to speak ill of the sovereign and they have to be taught the rules and laws and the connection between sovereign and divine power these things are all connected and these precepts are meant to match the ten commandments that is that this is like one of the first sovereign orders at least recorded in 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 the bible of rules to follow you know as the story goes from thousands of years ago with moses with the ten commandments and god telling him the ten commandments and coming down thou shalt not steal and murder and yada 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 now all people in the so in the commonwealth are then all equal underneath or within the sovereign's eyes no one is above anybody else that would be that would be chaos and so everybody should pay equal tax as per their receiving equal protection from the state and from the commonwealth 
that is at the time you know tax is just responsible for like maintaining the military maintaining basic infrastructure uh under sovereign rule you know the, the trade was not nearly as complicated as it is now nor national defense nor healthcare, nor anything like that so tax could just be used for these roles now he's clear though that not everyone is going to be able to actually contribute in the same ways where he gives the case of like elderly people who may not work uh, as much as a younger person they should still receive protection and care from the state and tax is meant to f uh, fill that in additionally all laws punishments must be made adequately clear so that people know what the stakes are if they break any of the laws then yeah that puts us into chapter 31 of the kingdom of god by nature which would be a nice little teaser for the next part when he considers the christian commonwealth so in all of this there is both a risk of someone submitting too willingly to sovereignty at god's expense because remember at the very top is god for hobbes and worshiping the sovereign shouldn't replace worshiping God, but acknowledging that the sovereign mimics and mirrors divines, uh, the div uh, God's divine authority. And but you know, accepting this as well, people must worship the sovereign to some extent, and not not to like just think of God as being the only person worth listening to. But here, of course, we're only dealing with those people who have agreed to submit to God's sovereignty, God's authority. Everybody else for Hobbes is an enemy. That's his word. They're just the enemies. Now, God has communicated with humanity in three ways. That is, through natural reason, through revelation, and through prophets. Now, only the first and the third give us universal laws. That is, only through natural reason, like he said before, self-preservation, liberty, these are natural laws that we've deduced through our reason and through prophets they've given us natural laws we don't or universal laws for him we haven't developed any universal laws through revelation because revelation are just like individual moments of a connection with god where you are given some divine knowledge truth of god's existence uh some some knowledge from god but you are not like special, like a prophet. You, you don't have that ability. You just take this information for yourself and then run with it. These are the three ways that God communicates with humanity. And it is only through the first and the third, through natural reason and through prophets, that universal laws are deduced. Now here he's referring, when he refers to one and three, he's really specifically looking at Judaism and the Jews because of their direct connection with God out of you see in the Bible from Moses to all of the the kings that would follow Moses, all of the sovereign figures like David and Saul and Samuel. Was Samuel a king? Whatever. These are all these people that would follow afterwards. Now, God's natural laws found in nature are equity, justice, mercy, and humility. These are the natural laws that are apparently found in nature beyond just self-preservation and liberty are all people equal in nature though is there justice in nature is there mercy in nature is there humility i mean i'll leave that up to you to decide i don't think so but 
it's there, at least in our understandings of these terms. He then clarifies that God's attributes are as follows. God is the creator of the world. God is infinite, a big claim. God is singular, another big claim. And God is indivisible, another big claim. These are things that people have come to challenge, certainly. Like even biblically, are these things true? Is God truly uh, infinite, singular, indivisible? Do we find that in the Bible? Do we find it in philosophy of religion? I, I mean, not really, but this is Hobbes' idea. It's one of many different possible understandings of, of God. So because God's laws are natural, so too then are the punishments that accompany those laws or that you know, are the result of those laws. So for example, he says that intemperance is meant, met with disease, rashness is met with mischance, injustice is met with retaliation, cowardice is met with oppression, etc. Which, like, is any of this true? I mean, this is like, he's just making a clearly verifiable point. And in verifying it, we find that that point is not true. So, all right. But his faith in it is nevertheless commendable. Like, maybe there's like, a current, like, there's truth to it, and I just don't see it on the page. So correct me if, you know, you're like, David, you just, you just don't get it. Explain why I don't get it. Don't just say I'm mean to Hobbes or anything. Explain why I don't get it. Uh, and yeah, and that'll wrap it up here. Next time, we're going to cover part three and part four of the Christian Commonwealth and of the Kingdom of, Go Kingdom of Darkness. We're going to cover those. And yeah, like I said, anything I got wrong, anything I missed or excluded, let me know. I'd love to hear about it. And on that note, you like what I did? Like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. They might love it. They might hate it. Who knows? And on that note, take care.